Jamie, no pressure, but you're setting precedence for the quality of this program today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 today. Judges 2, 1 to 5. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a little boy named Tommy. Tommy wasn't doing very well in math, and his parents had tried everything they could think of. Tutors, they would work with them with flashcards. They tried special learning centers. And so basically anything that they could think of that was at their disposal. And finally, in a last-ditch effort to get him to be able to grasp the concepts of math and be able to do well in school, they enrolled him in a Catholic school that was uh, in their town. And after the first day, he came home from school. He had a very serious look on his face, and normally he would come home and hug his mom and kiss her and say, you know, hello, and tell her about the day. But instead, he came home and he went straight up to his room and he started studying. He had books and papers everywhere spread out. He was working hard. His mother was amazed because there was such a change between the previous situation and now. She called him down for dinner that evening, and he came down and he ate, but then he went right back up to his room and started working on homework again. And this went on for some time, every day, um, and his parents were trying to figure out what made the difference, and, um, and he finally one day brought his report card home and laid it down on the table, and he went right up to his room and he started working on homework. And so his parents were a little hesitant to see what the report card was going to say. But when they looked at it, he had gotten an A in math. And so now they w were really wondering, like, what, like, what has changed this? What has made the difference here? And so his mom finally went up to his room and, and asked him, you know, about this. What, what's different? And she, she had some ideas in her head, like she wondered, was it the nuns? Like, is there something about the way they teach? Um, and he said no, and she said, is, you know, is it like some special book? Is the math book better? Is it easier to understand? Is, you know, like, is there some kind of structure in the day that's better for you? Is it the discipline of the school? Is it the uniforms? You know, what is it? Something's different, and we can't figure out what it is. Something made a difference. And Tommy said to her, well, on the first day of school, when I saw that guy nailed to the plus sign, I knew that they weren't fooling around. <laughs> so sometimes discipline is good. Sometimes, you know, God uses other means to us. But in Judges, what we're going to find in Judges in our text today is an element of God's discipline. But I said in the very first sermon in this series that we're going to see as God disciplines his, his children, 
as he allows them to undergo certain stresses or oppression or whatever it might be, that we're going to see God's heart of mercy and love and compassion behind all of that. And so let's look at our text today if you have it open. And if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word as we look at Judges 2, 1 to 5. So, real quick summary. Chapter 1 was a list of the victories in the southern campaign and the failures in the northern campaign, and it ended with a list of the tribes in the north that did not, they failed to drive the people out, and now those people are living among them and influencing them. And so, chapter 2 starts. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking you to teach us as we look into this text. And as we look at it in the context of all of the book of Judges and the history that was taking place at the time. So please open our hearts and minds. Um, and Father, let us always see your heart in all of your interactions with your people, whether it's in scripture or whether it's in our own time today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. All right, so the first point in your notes for today is that Israel breaks faith through disobedience. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 for this point. Israel breaks faith through disobedience. Now, the, the very first thing, very first verse in our text today is a rebuke from the angel of the Lord. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal and Bochim and then gives this rebuke. Now, the use of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is frequently identified with God himself. And so we have a number of situations in the Old Testament where it uses this phrase, the angel of the Lord, and it is referring to uh, God himself. And if you look at our text, if you, if you pay attention to the language, the angel of the Lord is using first-person pronouns when speaking about actions that God has performed in the past. Okay, so he says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I told you I would never break my covenant, and I commanded you not to, not to make a covenant with the people. And so he's using, he's talking about things that God has accomplished, and he's using first-person pronouns. And so we have a situation here where 
most people agree that, that this is God coming, but the text uses this phrase that it often uses, the angel of the Lord. And some people have concluded that this is probably one of the handful of situations in the Old Testament where we see the, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. So we have some situations in the Old Testament where an angel, it, it, it appears to be an angel to the people who are witnessing it or who are writing. Um, and in a, in a handful of those places, uh, scholars have concluded that this is an appearance of Jesus before he became incarnate as a man um, in the gospel accounts. The angel goes from, moves from Gilgal to Bochim. So I want to talk a little bit about Gilgal because it's kind of an important city in these early days. It was the location that where Joshua first set up the tabernacle when he crossed over the Jordan and came west of the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So they, if you remember in, in Joshua, they, they crossed the Jordan River because it was, it was like flood stage. The, the priest had to, by faith, step in, and when they stepped in, God parted the waters, just like he did with the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground. They gathered 12 stones, one for each tribe, and when they got to the other side, you might remember they set up a, a standing stone or a pillar of these stones, uh, which was to be t a testimony that God had done something important there, and they were commanded to in instruct their children and teach their children what God did there. That was at Gilgal. And so that was the first place to set up camp, first place to set up the tabernacle before they went and took Jericho. Um, so Gilgal was considered kind of a religious center in those early days because that was the first place that they had camped and set up the tabernacle. Now, the angel, this, there's a reference in our text that the angel went from there to Bochim, and then there's reference in the text in verses 4 and 5 that the people offered sacrifices. And so um, I don't know if this is a transferring of the center of religious activity for the, na the nation to a, a new location, um, but the angel moves from there to Bochim, um, verse 5 tells us that the people offered sacrifices there, and so the sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle. And we also, later on in the book, in chapters 20 and 21, there's reference that the tabernacle had been moved to Bethel, which is uh, not too far away from Bochim, but, um, but yet another location. All right, so what we have now is this rebuke from the angel of the Lord or from God. It's the second time that we have a recording in the book of Judges of God speaking to the people. He may, have spoken, he may have spoken to them at other times, but we know that he, he answered their request in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 1, when they said, who shall go up first? And God spoke to the people and gave them instructions. Um, this is now the second time. That first time, the first time that he spoke to them in chapter 1, verse 2, it was of a military nature. They were inquiring who is to go up first and fight to, to take this land. And God responds much like a commander. Here's your direction. Judah is to go, and then Judah asked Simeon to go with them and, and help him. And so God was giving them direction on 
a military campaign. But here, the second time we talk, he speaks, and, and I don't know how much time there is between the early verses of chapter 1 and the early verses of chapter 2. I don't know how much time has elapsed, but the second time that God comes to them to speak to them, these are words that are legal in nature. They're words of a judge who's holding them accountable for their failure to obey. And God, who can read the human heart, sees in them the motives of their disobedience, and as he comes to them to rebuke them, he exposes what is in their heart. And here's what we learn. The people had, they were told not to enter into covenant with the nations around them. God said, I have told you I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with them. And the, the rebuke is that you have disobeyed. You were, supposed to, you were not supposed to enter into covenant with them. You were supposed to break down their altars, but you have disobeyed, is what he's, you have, he says. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So they've entered into some kind of covenant or agreement with the nations surrounding them that they, that they did not drive out. Um, and in doing so, they have run after their false gods and committed a spiritual adultery against God, who has been their deliverer from the very beginning. Now, there's danger in disobedience. There's danger, specific danger in Israel's disobedience, but there's danger in any disobedience. God's command to them was to break down the altars, which means to get rid of any trace of their pagan religious practices, like like. That needs to be completely wiped out and done away with. And as we mentioned last week, if Israel didn't, if they, if they did not rid the land of the influence of these nations, then Israel would be enticed to take part in these evil practices. And God knew that light and dark cannot coexist. And... He knew the dangers of trying to make the two coexist. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.14, says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? God had been warning his people long before Paul ever penned those words that this was a danger. You need to get, you need to rid the land of all of this because if you don't, you'll have light and darkness trying to coexist and it doesn't work. The darkness will infiltrate and influence you. As I was as I was studying this week and just thinking about the, the sin cycle of judges and, and how they were, the people were constantly falling into these the sins of worshiping other gods, I, I was trying to figure out, like, what is the draw? If, if, you're, if you're ancient Israel, what is the draw of the false gods that were worshiped by the na surrounding nations? Because They've obviously seen God perform miraculous works. Now, 
there wasn't, it, it appears that there wasn't a very good passing down of the, of the accounts of what God had done in Egypt and then in the wilderness and, and maybe even Joshua's generation of conquering the promised land. So part of it, I think, was a failure on the people to pass that down because what we're told in Judges is that a generation is raised, is raised up that doesn't know the Lord. That's uh, later in chapter 2. So there, I think there's a failure here, but there's also some kind of draw that continues to pull Israel to these false gods. And I was trying to figure out what that is. And I think the key is that these gods are worshipped and believed by the surrounding nations to be to have some kind of power and influence over things in life that we as human beings do not have power and influence over. So if you think about like the the god uh, Baal and the god Asherah, the goddess Asherah, they were two of the really common ones that were worshipped in the Old Testament among the uh, nations that were surrounding Israel. He was believed to be a god of fertility. Um, in fact, a lot of the images of him, whether like statues or whatever that, that they've uncovered as they've uh, done excavations and things, um, they depict him holding a lightning bolt. And so they would pray to him for rain. And when you are when you're a, a, a culture that relies heavily upon agriculture in order to survive, you need rain. And rain is out of, out of our control as human beings. And so they see the nations worshiping this God, that, claiming that he's the one who controls the rain. And Asherah was his sexual partner who was supposed to be, uh, the two of them would create fertility for the land. And so what what they're seeing is here's something out of my control that I really need and these other nations are all they seem to be very confident that these gods that they worship are in control of those things and so I think that's part of the draw but I think there's another, another element that I think seals the deal because they also could say well God can control the rain we've seen God do the miraculous we've seen Yahweh do things that overtake or, or, you know, alter what it, we know to be um, the, the order that the earth is, is built upon, and he can, he can supersede that and he can intervene in that. So they've seen him do that, but I think the difference between worshiping Yahweh and worshiping maybe these other false gods is this. Even though he's a god that has control over, you know, even if they believed that, he, he, that, that these gods were gods that could control things that were beyond their, their control, that he's larger than just being a mere human, yet they are gods that can be manipulated, and so there is some control on the part of the worshiper. Let me, let me explain. It's believed that if they have a good enough sacrifice or if they have a strong enough devotion to these gods, then they can ensure that, tho that those gods will pour their blessing on them. And so when you've got a god who can control things in your, in your mind, can control things that are, that are out of your control, and yet you can 
by enough works or enough devotion or whatever it is that you're going to do, it, you can yet still kind of manipulate that and, and ensure your blessing from that God. That seems a whole lot more, I think, um, a, whole lot, a whole lot more encouraging or, or gives you a little bit more power and assurance than turning to a God that has all control and you have no influence over him. You can't do enough good to get his blessings and you can't do enough bad for him to stop loving you. But that's a vulnerable place to be. And so I think the draw is that the worshiper acknowledges that something is more powerful than himself, and yet it's a God that the worshiper can still manipulate for his own gain. And so Israel constantly, not just through the book of Judges, but all throughout the prophets, Israel is constantly running after these false gods and breaking faith through disobedience. Point number two is what we see in the character of God, and that's that God keeps faith through discipline. He keeps faith to his covenant through his discipline. Verses three to five is where we see this, so I'm going to just pick up looking at our text again. Let me read that to refresh our memory. I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will, they will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. All right, so God discipline and, and justice is a part of God's character. God cannot allow sin to just have its way without there being some kind of discipline. And so I want to look at four things today that help us to see that even in the midst of his discipline, we're seeing a heart of love and compassion and mercy. And so some of this is going to come from Judges. Some of this is going to come from other places in Scripture that we, that we can draw from. But the first one is that discipline demonstrates real love. Discipline demonstrates real love. How many of you, if you have kids, or your kids might be grown, but you've had kids in the past, how many of you have disciplined your children and been told that you don't love them because of what you're doing to them. Yes. That's one of my favorites. You don't love me because you're punishing me. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 8. We're going to look at, we're gonna look at a longer part of Hebrews 12 because um, we're going to get into 9 to 11, I think, in, the, in another point. But this one, Hebrews 12, 5 to 8, the author of Hebrews says, My son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. 
For what children are not disciplined by their fathers? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, but if you're not disciplined, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. So the author of Hebrews is saying, when God disciplines you, it is a demonstration of his love toward you. And it's the same thing with earthly fathers. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but it's the same thing with earthly fathers or, or mothers. A parent disciplines their children because they love them. And I've tried to explain to my children who, when they start thinking like this, like you don't love me because you're disciplining me, I, I've tried to tell them before, if, if I didn't love you, then I wouldn't care what kind of terror you'd become. Like, I wouldn't discipline you. I wouldn't punish you at all. You could be whatever you want because if I don't love you, then I don't really care what you become. But because I do care about you and love you and want you to become somebody who, who is in a right relationship with God, somebody who is a, a blessing to society, somebody who is going to be someone that people love being around because you are so encouraging to them, because I want you to become like that, I'm not going to let you just do whatever you want because that's dangerous for you. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying earthly fathers um, and parents don't do that, and God doesn't do that as our Father in heaven. And that, those first two verses, verses 5 and 6, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone who accepts, he accepts as a son. That's quoting Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. So Solomon, the wisest man that's ever walked the earth, you know, um, he's quoting the words of Solomon there telling us to not be discouraged or, or make light of the, the fact that God disciplines us. It's actually something that is good for us, and so it comes from love. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And so Hosea, who had a rough life, dealt with, um, un an unfaithful wife and the suffering that comes with that. Hosea, who's gone through so much suffering, says God has torn us so that he can heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Psalm 71 20, you have you who have made me to see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. And so, these are three examples. I could, I could probably find hundreds of them throughout the Bible where God disciplines his children. He allows some kind of suffering to come into their life because of things that they've done to disobey, and it is done for the purpose of restoring them. So, it's, it's a demonstration of his love. Second one, discipline brings about repentance. Discipline brings about repentance. Now, in our text, in Judges chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, if you look at that, the people repent. They, they repented, and they were brokenhearted when the angel spoke this rebuke. It says that not only... They weren't just like bummed out and they weren't just like walking around somber because, you know, they messed up and God rebuked them. Like they were weeping aloud. They were crying 
out loud for, for people that people would have heard. And they were brokenhearted over what they had done. And they turn immediately to offer sacrifices. And so they're repenting of what, of what they've done. They're brokenhearted. They're trying to do what uh, God says had commanded in his law to do to be made right with him. So they are they're crying out to him. They're weeping and they're offering sacrifices. But we have another example of someone who, who went through a, a time of repentance as well. When you look at the character of Job, after God rebuked Job and basically puts Job in his place, because Job did have some spiritual arrogance on his part, um, Job, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything that God was punishing him for by allowing Satan to do the things that he did to Job. But as the t- as you read through the book, there is there is an element of Job saying. Why, why did you bring this on me? I didn't do anything to, to deserve this. And God rebukes him and really puts Job in his place. And in Job 42, verse 6, after God re- rebukes him and Job listens to that, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job had gone through some suffering Job had, in the, in the process, had some spiritual arrogance. God rebuked him for it, and Job's response is, I despise who I am, and I repent in dust and ashes. See, discipline is oftentimes used to bring about repentance. Third one, discipline differs from consequences. Discipline differs from consequences. So discipline is a punishment that's placed on a lawbreaker, and the punishment comes from the hand of the lawgiver. So God had made, God had given commands to his people, and they broke those commands, and so there is discipline in our text today. It's his it's his punishment that he's placing on those who broke the law. So the discipline or the punishment that we see in our text is that uh, since Israel broke God's command, then the discipline is that God is no longer going to drive the pagan nations out before them. So we've talked about how if they had obeyed, the promise that God made them was, if you obey me, then you know here are the blessings that I will show you. If you disobey me, here are the curses that will come on you. And specifically concerning the conquering of the promised land, God said, I will, I will hand them over to you so that you can conquer them. And we've talked about how the nations were stronger and bigger, um, more powerful than Israel. And so um, there's no way that Israel on their own could have gone in and taken these, overtaken these nations. But God's promise was, I will lead you, you just trust me and obey me, and I will hand them over to you. In fact, at the beginning of Judges chapter 1, when they ask, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites, God says, Judah shall go up, behold, I have given the land into his hand. And so God, the plan was, if they obeyed, God was going to make this easy for them. He was going to empower them to be able to go in and conquer the nations and take the land. 
But the discipline or the, the punishment for disobeying, according to God's words here in, in verses 1 to 5, the, the discipline or the punishment is that I'm no longer going to do that. That's the discipline part of it. But consequence is different from discipline. Consequence is the natural result of a specific action taken. So the consequence of Israel's disobedience is that they will now be surrounded by the pagan nations whose vile and evil practices will, keep, will seep into the Israelite culture and corrupt it. They're going to be enticed by their gods and they're going to fall into I- idolatry. And I mean, that's, that's the warning that God says here. So the discipline is, I was going to do this, but you disobeyed, so I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to drive them out. The consequence of their disobedience is not God's discipline. The consequence is because God is disciplining you now and not doing this, now you're stuck with these people. And he warns them. He says, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so that is what is going to happen because of their disobedience. Now, if they had obeyed, God would have driven them out and there would have been peace in the land and there would have been no influence of the pagan religions. But now, because they've not, the consequence is that they're going to have to live with these people and they're going to influence them. And I, that's something else I've tried to help my kids understand. Like, you, you take an action that's wrong, like you disobeyed in some way. There's going to be a punishment. There's going to be discipline. But there are also going to be consequences that come as a result of that that are out of my hands. Like, my discipline will last a short time. It will be done. But the consequences may extend for a while into the, into the future. And that's what Israel's go- going to be suffering with through the rest of the book of Judges and, and frequently throughout the, its Old Testament history. All right, number, the, number four, the last one. Discipline trains in righteousness. So if you look at these, and I'm going to get into this, but if you look at these, like, bringing about repentance, that, is, that, that comes from a heart of love that God wants. He wants his people to repent and be restored to him. Um, the discipline, God, God will discipline them, but there's going to come an end to that discipline now, that's different than the consequences. The consequences may, may last for a while, but his discipline is going to be for a short time because of his love for them. And this one here, discipline, the purpose of discipline is often to train in righteousness. That comes from a heart of love. James 1, 2-4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produ- produces perseverance, I love verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So we go through trials, we go through hardships, we go through struggles in life, testing of our faith. Sometimes those things come as a result of our disobedience. Sometimes they come not as a result. Job's wasn't as a result of his disobedience. But God allows those things to come into our lives 
to, to do the work it's, that's necessary. And James says, so that you can be mature. God is using it to shape and mold and mature you and to make you complete so that you're not lacking in anything. Job 42.5. So this is um, right before the, the text that we read earlier um, in Job. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And so Job went from someone who had heard about God, but didn't know him or hadn't, hadn't really had any kind of personal interaction with him to now I see you with my eyes. It's something personal now. Now I know you and I've had personal interaction with you. And so Job's relationship with God through his suffering and then also through the rebuke is something that brings him from knowledge of God to personal relationship with God where God is going to be molding and shaping and maturing him. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So this is, a, this is something I think is really important. Um, I, I fail at this all the time. But our training of our... our our discipline and the, the, way we, the way we parent our children is to be done in order to train them and instruct them in the, in the way of the Lord. So Paul's saying, fathers, remember that you are to imitate God when you discipline your children. And remember also that the end goal of discipline is righteousness. It's not, it's not the, the purpose of discipline is not to exercise your authority over that person. The purpose of discipline is not to is not to, you know, hold, hold them under your thumb or to oppress them or to make them understand that you are the boss. I mean, those things are part of being in a, a position of authority, but the purpose of discipline is to correct wrong behavior so that they can become people who are righteous in character. In Hebrews 12, this is the the continuing of the one we re read earlier, 9 to 11. You know, earlier, the one we read, he said, don't, don't uh, despise the Lord's discipline. Um, he goes on, he says, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, our earthly fathers, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. So the, the author of Hebrews is real clear here. The purpose for God's discipline in our lives is so that we can be made holy like him. No discipline, this is verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, listen to this, later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the purpose of discipline is to train in righteousness. All right, let me wrap up here. In the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2, God tells the people he remained faithful and he will remain faithful to his covenant even though they did not. God's heart is one of mercy and compassion and desires reconciliation and restoration for his people. So what that means is we can't mess up badly enough that God would ever give up on us. And even though we break faith with him, he never will break faith with us. We cannot drive him to the point where he would break his covenant. 
with us. And we should be encouraged by that. Discipline is a necessary thing when it comes to sinful man. It's a serious thing. And the story at the beginning that I told was funny. Um, but because God loves us so much, and because only a perfect sacrifice will satisfy his justice, the reason Christ died on the cross was to take the discipline and the punishment that we were supposed to suffer and he took it for us because it, even if we had gone through that ourselves it would not have fixed our problem. So God out of the love in his heart said you've really messed up and there's no way for you to fix this. I will make a way for you to fix it because I don't want to be apart from you. I want to have restoration and I want to bring you back into fellowship with me and I want you to experience the joy of eternity with me. So because of his loving and his merciful heart, he did not break faith, but provided for us after we broke faith with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've provided that for us because without that we would be lost. Um, we can't possibly we can't possibly have fixed our sin problem. And there's punishment. There has to be punishment for sin because you're righteous and holy and you cannot allow sin to have its way. But your punishment and discipline is not because you get pleasure out of being harsh with us or that you get pleasure out of demonstrating that you are more powerful than us. The discipline is because what brings you pleasure is to restore us, to heal us, to make us not only in right relationship again with you, but to continue to train and mold and shape us into the holiness and the righteousness that, that are your very character. So as we go through the book of Judges, let us, let us not lose sight of how even some of the things that would be really awful that the people went through that if we had to go through we would be crying out and probably grumbling and complaining but those things were necessary things from a heart of love in order to restore them to you um, in right relationship and we thank you that you never gave up on us and that your son was willing to take our punishment for it in his name we pray amen